Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ and consider it a privilege to be able to talk to you. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find seven letters written to various churches in first century Asia. While all of the letters are fascinating and teach us some of the most important lessons, I want us to turn our attention to chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, where we find the letter to the church in Smyrna. This is what the Lord had to say to them. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, I read all of that because I wanted us to get in the beginning an appreciation for what these brethren had to endure, of the persecution to which they were subjected, and the tremendous poverty some of them had to face, probably a poverty of a sort that none of us have ever experienced. But there is a four-word parenthetical expression in this passage that teaches us a fundamental truth about being a Christian. It is found in verse 9, and it simply says, but you are rich. The fundamental truth to which I was referring is the fact that no matter what our particular physical circumstances may be, Christians are the wealthiest people on earth. That is a true statement, but it is not always easy to remember it isn't. If we should find ourselves in a situation where we are wondering where the next month's rent or mortgage payment is going to come from, it can be hard to realize how rich we really are. If a faithful child of God has to decide between the medicine they need or a couple of meals a day, it's hard to feel wealthy. Or when our body is racked with pain, or we're dealing with sickness, or those we love are dealing with the sickness and it weighs upon us seemingly every minute of every day, even interrupting our sleep or completely taking it away, it is hard to remember that nobody else on earth occupies as enviable a position as we do. Sometimes bad things just happen to us. People can say and do things that hurt and wound, and we don't think those wounds will ever heal. And when we are sitting there saying to ourselves and God, why in the world did this happen or why was this done to me? It is hard to remember that we are in the top percentile of wealth in what really matters. We truly are. It is my plan to talk about why we are the wealthiest people in the world. 
No other group of people even comes close. We're going to learn and hopefully come to appreciate that we have blessings here that cannot be and are not affected by circumstances and events in this life. They are ours to enjoy now, and no one and nothing on this earth can take them away from us except us. In addition to that, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The phrase, in Christ, occurs 30 times in the six chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. Now down in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we find, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The easiest way to understand verse 23 is to think of a tire that contains an inner tube. When the inner tube is filled with air until it is the fullness of the tire, then all of the air in the tire must be in the inner tube. In just the same way, the church is the fullness of Christ, meaning that all the blessings found in Christ are in the church, and it can't be any other way. So as members of the body of Christ, we enjoy all the blessings that are to be found in him. Ephesians 1 mentions just a very few of those bountiful blessings. For instance, verses 4 and 5 tells us, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. As faithful children of God, we have been chosen through our obedience to the gracious plan of God, predestined unto adoption as his children. In verse 11, we see that we have that marvelous inheritance awaiting us. In verse 12, that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But now, and for the remainder of our time in this episode, I want to focus on verse 7 and the tremendous blessing that it tells us we have. In this verse, Paul wrote, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We might ask, how wealthy are we? How do we place a value on the fact that we have been forgiven? In the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, sin entered into the world. When sin entered into the world, so too did death, both physical and spiritual, with spiritual death being of a far greater significance for it meant separation from God. Adam and Eve had enjoyed an absolutely glorious, pristine, undefiled fellowship with God. They defiled it by sinning and came to know what it meant to be separated from the Creator. Where there had been confidence and love, there was now fear and anxiety. The effect of this is pointed out in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, which says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, 
and so death spread to all men because all sin. The same point is made in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where Paul wrote, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What was and is the result? Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. That is separation. Where once all of us were in the bosom of God, when we sinned, we created the separation. The ultimate punishment for unforgiven sin is eternal damnation. But right now, here and now, it means to be separated from God, from our glorious Creator who sent the rain on the just and the unjust, the very source of all love. In the garden, God did not leave man without hope, no. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 came the first indication that what was now the greatest need of man, God had a plan to supply. Man now needed forgiveness. Man now needed the gulf that we created when we sinned to be bridged. That verse tells us, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We're not going to take the time to go into the meaning of each of those phrases now. Let it suffice to say that God had a plan. The plan included payment being made for sin that God would accept. When we sin, what we take from God is a pure, pristine, undefiled, and uncorrupted human being. How that plan worked and what it is, in short, is found in Hebrews chapter 9. For the sake of time, we'll only read verses 24 through 28. The Hebrew writer wrote, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he could offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. I have often watched new roofs being put on homes. Had one put on my house several years back. Occasionally you see a person carrying a package of shingles on his shoulders. And if you've ever done that, you know that they are a burden to be borne, especially as the day wears on. Well, from the moment a person sins, he or she has placed that load upon their backs, and it just keeps getting heavier and heavier as the day wears on, figuratively speaking. Through his glorious plan, God has offered not just temporary relief, but to take the burden completely away. He has said, I'll do it. Oh, friends, the prophets had spoke about Jesus. He it was who would come and save his people from their sins, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. How would he be, be received when he came? Well, John chapter 1, and verse 11 gives us the answer to that question. It tells us he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus came as the culmination of God's plan to offer mankind a way out of our greatest need. What was the answer he received for the most part? Remember how the Jewish leaders had false charges brought against the Lord? 
made a mockery of his trial, despising God's gracious help. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, we read, And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. The hatred was so great that they desired to release a murderer rather than to spare the life of our blessed Lord. They rejected him who had done no wrong. No sin was to be found in his life. They nailed Jesus to the cross. What had he done? He had had compassion for their suffering. He healed the sick, made the blind to see, the lame to walk. Even the dead were brought back to life. To put it simply, he went about doing good. How did he return the terrible treatment he received? By saying in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. On the day of Pentecost, after the apostles were given the Holy Spirit, the Jews in that city were given the first opportunity for the forgiveness of sins under the law of Christ. When Peter brought his sermon to a close that day, he said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Can we imagine the awful feeling of guilt in such a thing for those with an honest heart? They responded with, Brethren, what shall we do? God offered the plan through the words that Peter spoke in verse 38. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Down in verse 41 we find, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. There it was, forgiveness. Perhaps some of that 3,000 had been in the crowd and lifted their voices, crying out, Crucify him, crucify him. I think about Saul, a man concerning which Acts chapter 8 and verse 3 tells us, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. If we move over just one chapter to Acts chapter 9 and look at verses 1 and 2, we find now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul was zealous in his persecution of the church, even giving his consent when some were put to death. While on the road to Damascus, for the expressed purpose of arresting Christians, we know that the Lord appeared to Saul. After being told that he was guilty of persecuting the Lord himself, Saul asked, Lord, what would you have me to do? He was told what to do, and ultimately he was baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and went on to become the great apostle Paul. I have done things in my life that I wish I had never done. I have done things of which I am ashamed. I still remember them. But because of the plan of God and the wonderful work of Jesus, as far as my guilt for those sins is concerned, God does not remember them against me. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12 we read, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. If I sit and think about the sins I have committed in the past, and consider each one as another blow on the hammer of the nails in my Lord's hands and feet, I could just cry, but I don't have to do that. Think once again of what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 and verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Bad things do happen sometimes, and they can really get us down. But my friends, we can't ever let them keep us down. No matter what happens, if we are a faithful Christian, we are rich beyond measure with things that do not perish with the using. Truth be told, again, if we are a faithful Christian, we are just a stranger and a pilgrim on this earth, passing through on our way home, wealthy beyond compare. Such wonderful promises made to those who are children of God. Are you a faithful Christian? Thanks for listening.